And for the rest of us, uh, we are starting a new sermon series in the book of Judges. So if you will, please turn to the book of Judges. Now, a, a few comments about the book of Judges for us all to be aware. The book of Judges was written thousands of years ago. It was written in a language that I assume none of you speak. It takes place in a land none of us live in. It contains wars and battles that none of us signed up for. In the book of Judges, there are names, as you'll see as I read the text, there are names where we can barely pronounce those names. There are cities that no longer exist. There are some strange stories. There are stories in this book that are laughable, like the story of Ehud. And then there are stories in this book that make us, frankly, uncomfortable. As we read them, they'll make our, our stomachs churn. We want to look away. Those stories mostly come later in the book of Judges. The book of Judges might be a strange book. It might be a distant book. It might be a hard book. But it's not a foreign book. The book of Judges, as I hope to explain each and every week, is as applicable to us today as it was when it was written so long, long ago. You see, the book of Judges is about God forging a community of worshipers in a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Sound familiar? The book of Judges is a narrative description of what happens when God's word falls on deaf ears. When people assume God or are bored with God or are, they desire to water down God. Sound familiar? The book of Judges also helps us make sense of flawed heroes. I assume many of us have some heroes, some Christian heroes who have made a big impact on our lives. Maybe the, the, the sort of celebrity Christian people. And we all know some who have been extraordinarily effective and yet have fallen by their sin, by their moral failure. Some even into apostasy, just rejecting God. How do we make sense of those kind of men and women? Those men and women who, who, who God sovereignly uses, but are so flawed. The book of Judges helps us. And perhaps most of all, the book of Judges proclaims that in order for the people of God to be delivered from slavery, from the slavery of sin, they need a spirit-empowered judge and savior. Sound familiar? As you're reading your Old Testament, there, there are books and verses where the gospel about Jesus Christ and his redemptive accomplishments, they come to us in seed form. Not in the book of Judges. You'd have to be blind not to see Jesus in the book of Judges. Jesus is all over each and every chapter of this book, as I hope we'll all see each and every week. So for the next few months, we're going to look at this book. It's a book that you might be familiar with because of Sunday school. You all heard some of these stories, stories like Samson and Gideon. 
But hopefully when we're done, we realize that these stories are not meant just for the flannel graph. No, no, these stories are far more glorious. This book is about God's grace on full display as he rescues sinners through saviors. This book is about grace in the midst of the the chaos and messiness of life. I'll be frank, the, the book of Judges is a dark book. But there's purpose in the darkness of its themes. The dark themes merely set to contrast the beauty of God's grace and love and mercy as he relentlessly pursues his beloved people. So, turn with me to chapter 1. We're going to look at chapter 1 and chapter 2 and part of chapter 3 today. This forms an introduction. All of the themes that we find in the entire book, we find in these first few chapters. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's on page 236. And as you do, let me just point out, like I do every week, what the big idea is. It'll be on the screen behind me. The big idea is this. What the people of God have always needed most is a Savior. That's what we'll consider today. We're going to read chapter 1. All of it. So if you have a Bible, you'd, you'd be good to, to be looking at this. And forgive me of some of my mispronunciations. I'm assuming I'll have some of them. Starting in verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Behold, I've given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go up with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adoni Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adoni Bezek fled, but they pursued him and cut off and, and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. It wasn't a good day for him, was it? And Adoni Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. Now let me, let me just point out something really quickly then we'll keep reading. So sometimes when we read of this this, this narrative, the Israel, uh, their conquest of the land, it does something to our morality. We think, what are they doing? They just are obliterating people. And there's something of an injustice that we might be experiencing with our 21st century, you know, morality. But I just want to point out, look at this king here, Adoni Bezek. What happened to him is, is most assuredly cruel, but he doesn't think there's anything unjust that's happened to him. He thinks that the justice of God has finally come upon him. He's fine with it. We might not be fine with it. Verse 8. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set it in a city of fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negev and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arabah. 
and they defeated Shishai and Iman and Talmai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Deber. The name of Deber was formerly Kiriath-Sephir. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath-Sephir and captures it, I will give him Asha, my daughter, for a wife. And Ethnael, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Akash, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites and the inhabitants of Zephthath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hermah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Eklon with its territory and Ekron and its territory. And the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plains because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb as Moses had said. And he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal with kindly with you. And he showed them the way in the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and his family go, and the man went into the land of the Hittites and built a city called its name, and called it its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and the villages, Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, and the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, and the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, and the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of the Kidron and the inhabitants of Nethal, so the Canaanites lived with them but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Echo and the inhabitants of Sidon and Ablab or Ixbid or whatever or the Helba or the... <laughs> so the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. We're almost done. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shem and the inhabitants of Beth Anoth, so they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shisha and Beth uh, Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heris and Ijalal. And you know. And, but the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah, and upward.
Amen. <laughs> now, back in verse 1, if you remember, something sad, something sad takes place. Joshua is dead. The man appointed by God to lead his people into the promised land, the, one of the greatest leaders of Israel is gone. Back in Genesis 15, God promised Abraham by way of a covenant that he would make his people as numerous as the stars. And attached to that covenant and promise was that they would have a land. They would possess a land. And the land described later is a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, generations after that promise to Abraham, Israel is in the land. That's what the book of Joshua is about. They're in the land, but there's work to be done in the land. They need to push out the other nations from the land. And so in verse 1, they inquire of the Lord. Good job, Israel. Right? They pray. They ask God, who shall go up first? And God says, Judah. So even here we see Judah taking leadership. The tribe of Judah goes up first. And then what follows in chapter 1 is the account of the tribes of Israel as they take possession of most of the land. We see nine tribes in chapter 1 and their attempted conquest of the land. Most of it is about Judah. So in verse 3, Judah tags up with Simeon. And then in verses 4 through 19 is a description of Judah's many battles against other nations with a sort of, I don't know if you notice this, a small interlude about Caleb and his daughter. Caleb, the, the celebrated spy who along with Joshua is praised for his faith. Well, Caleb says, if someone, you know, uh, sacks a particular city, I'll give my own daughter. And so Othniel, who, who we'll meet later, we'll meet in chapter three again, he has the victory and so Caleb gives his daughter to him. So Judah, in chapter 1, seems to have success after success, don't they? That is until verse 19. Look at verse 19. But. Right? Almost everything ominous in the Bible starts with the word but. You just know something bad is about to happen. But Judah could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. So Judah, well, they succeed in part. They win some battles, but they lose the war. They have half-hearted obedience at best. And so then what we get, starting in verse 20, is the story of most of the other tribes. So verse 21, Benjamin fails to dislodge the Jebusites. Then the house of Joseph makes covenants with Canaanites. We see that in verse 24. Manasseh fails to drive out the various groups of people. And then not only that, but then they exploit their labor. God says not to take slaves or plunder. Oh, but it was much easier to exploit and enslave the Canaanites than to actually push them out. And that's what they do. Ephraim allows the Canaanites to live among them. Verse 29, Zebulun opts for exploiting and forcing other Canaanites into labor. Verse 30, tribe of Asher, well, not much better. Instead of, living among the, instead of the Canaanites living among them, they live among the Canaanites. 
Same with Naphtali, verse 33. The tribe of Dan, they, they, they become confined to the hill country. Verse 34. And then we end in verse 36. And look, in verse 36, what matters is not the borders allotted by God to the people of God. What's described there, it's the borders of the Amorites. As if to say that the Amorites have more faith and resolve to hold out on their little niche of land than the people of God. So all throughout chapter 1, what we have is a detailed description of Israel's failure to possess the land. They took it in part. They won a few battles, but they couldn't do it fully. This is half-hearted obedience. At best, full rejection of God and his word at worst. Actually, I don't know if you noticed, but the, there is someone who kind of has, um, is the most faithful in this text. It's a woman. It's Caleb's daughter. Caleb's daughter asks uh, Caleb for water, water rights. Now, why would she do that? As a wedding present, why would she ask her dad for water rights? Because she wants to take the land, possess the land, and enjoy the land. Here we have this woman as a rebuke to Israel. She's the only one who is taking it and enjoying it. Israel fails time and time again in chapter 1. But that's not the only thing we see here. It's interesting. We see God's sovereign hand all throughout chapter 1. Just consider, Israel receives divine direction from God in verse 1, right? God, they, they inquire and God tells them to send Judah first. Then in verse 2, God gives them divine assurance. I have given them into your hands. He assures them it's done. Then Israel experiences divine power, verse 4. God is said to have given them the initial victory. And then lastly, God gives Israel his divine presence. Verse 19, the Lord was with Judah. Verse 20, the Lord was with Joseph. So we read in chapter 1, divine direction, divine assurance, divine power, divine presence. Yet, verse 19, Judah did not drive him out. Verse 27, Manasseh did not drive him out. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive them out. 30, Zebulun did not drive them out. 31, Asher did not drive them out. 33, Naphtali did not drive them out. Seven times our author tells us that, that, each, that the tribes did not drive them out. The number of completion is used ironically to suggest that they completely failed. <laughs> so, how, how do you reconcile their, their failure and God's divine presence. If I had Mike Tyson in his prime, in my corner, I wouldn't be afraid of anyone in the boxing ring. Israel has God in their corner. He, God has given them assurance, his presence, his power. How do they fail to take the land? Well, let's consider some options. Did they fail because they were small? Did they fail because they were cowards? Did they fail because God, God just got tired of them? Did they fail because they were inferior warriors? Maybe they failed because of the economy. 
right? They, they got seduced into revenue collecting from enslaving a people than by kicking them out. Or maybe it was technological inferiority. They didn't have iron, uh, chariots of iron. Some nations did. Now, some of those reasons might have been reasons why Israel gave as to why they failed to take possession of the land, but that's not the reason. To understand how they failed, to understand why they failed, we need help. We need actually divine help. And thankfully, that's exactly what we get in chapter 2. Chapter 1 has given us the facts. Chapter 2 is going to give us heaven's assessment of those facts. So starting in chapter 2, an angel of the Lord appears. And the angel of the Lord doesn't just appear. He interprets and explains why they failed. Look look at it with me. Chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Boikam. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenants with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be snares to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and they wept. And they called the name of that place Boikim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to the inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance at Timnah Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gash. And all the generations also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they, prov- and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherath. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to the plunders who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of the surrounding enemies so that they could not, no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress." Verse 2, the angel of the Lord appears. Now, this is the first time that he appears in this book, but it's not the last time. He'll appear again in chapter 5, chapter 6, and then lastly in chapter 13. Now, the route that the angel of the Lord takes is important. Look at it. The angel of the Lord goes from Gilgal to Boikam. Now, it's not as if the angel of the Lord, like, has a house in Gilgal and he's, you know, vacationing up to Boycom. That's not what's going on here. 
What's going on is the author wants to remind us of a particular city and something that happened particularly in that particular city. All the way back in Joshua 5, the people of God make a covenant with God. The new generation is circumcised. God is said to take away their reproach. God forgives them of their sins. And where does this take place? You guessed it, Gilgal. So the angel of the Lord comes up from Gilgal to Boycom, and what does he find? He finds a people who have failed. And how have they failed? Well, they failed in a Gilgalian way. Chapter 2, verse 1. I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenants with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? God was with Israel. Israel wasn't with God. Their failure, as is pointed out by the angel of the Lord, is that they failed to keep the covenant. The covenant that they were to keep was simple. Have no other gods. Worship no other gods. Bow down to no other gods. And kick out the other gods because God knew of their subtle temptation to worship those other gods. Now, we sometimes think of the conquest only in terms of blessing. That Israel taking the land, it, it was just, you know, ice cream. It was, it was just a blessing. He was going to make them numerous and say, oh, I'm going to give you this land too. No, no, no. Fundamentally, this is spiritual in orientation and nature. The, the reason why they, they get the land is profoundly spiritual. The, the, Lord back, uh, the Lord back in Exodus tells Moses this in, verse, uh, in chapter 23, verse 33. God says to Moses, Do not let those people live in your country. Those people meaning other nations with other gods. Because if you do, they will make you sin against me. If you worship their gods, it will be a fatal trap for you. So even back in Exodus, God is saying, oh, don't hang out with the Canaanites. I know what's going to happen. You see, the purpose of the campaign, it was an ethnic cleansing. And we know that because Rahab, the Canaanite, is allowed to stay uh, along with the Kenites who settled with Judah. And we also know that this campaign, it's not imperialistic. They can't take plunder or slaves. No, the, the, the purpose of this was cleansing Canaan from her idols, from her gods, so that Israel could faithfully worship the true God and then keep the covenant by doing so. So in chapter 1, we get a glimmer of how this plays out how they fail to keep the covenant. And then in chapter 2, we see it fully spelled out. So in verses 1 through 6, the angel explains Israel's failure. And then in verse 6 through 10, if you look at it, we go back in time and we see how, uh, how kind of generationally they fail, how generationally they abandon their God in verses 6 through 10. 
And then once more, we read in verses 11 through 15 in, in some more detailed uh, explanation and, and more specifically how they started worshiping other gods, how they broke the covenant. And then in that section, we also learn of God's reaction to it. So look back in verse 6. In the days of Joshua, people followed not only Joshua, but they followed Joshua's God. The people served the Lord. But when Joshua died, slowly, generationally, decades after his faithful leadership, all hell breaks loose. Verse 10. And all that, all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, meaning they died when that generation died. The, the, the third generation, or the second generation, the, the third generation is said about this. And there arose another generation, the third generation after them, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So here we have generational discipleship breaking down. And part of the reason they failed was that they lack an experiential knowledge of God, right? It says that they did not know the Lord or the works of the Lord. Now, I don't think that what this means is that by this third generation that they could no longer tell the Exodus story. Or if they were forced to sit down and write the Exodus story, that they couldn't do that. No, no, they, they could have done that. They probably knew a lot about God they just didn't know God. This clause in verse 10 that we read, it parallels another clause we find in a story a little bit later. 1 Samuel chapter 2. And what's described are two sons of Eli, priests, priests who are said to have not known the Lord or the works of the Lord. They're, well, just you can read it for homework this week. They, they are raunchy priests, to say the least. And because of this, they are judged. God judges them because of this. What this is telling us is that there is a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. There is a difference between saying all the right words, knowing the facts and verses and stories in the Bible, and experientially having a vibrant, real relationship with God. There is a difference between being able to recite a creed and worshiping the God of that creed. Parents, do you want to pass on your knowledge of God to your children? It's not enough for you to just tell them facts to just tell them stories, to just tell them verses. They need to experience God in your life. Your job is not to shelter them from what God is doing in your life. Actually, your job is to gossip about it, to display God working in and through your life. Your greatest discipleship is connecting Sunday to Monday, showing our children that God actually matters. In verses 6 through 10, we're reminded of the sober reality that God's people did not know God. They had very little regard for him. They, they cared little for the Lord. They didn't acknowledge him. 
It was as if the Lord's work didn't matter in their lives. God had little influence in their lives. Maybe he had, maybe he had a little bit. Maybe a little influence. But not a universal influence. And then after that section, we have an almost worse section. Verses 11 through 15. And we learn that, that, that kind of drawing away from God and forgetting God it happens so subtly. We see how subtle this takes place in 11 through 15. Because in Israel's case, they didn't just subtract God from their lives. They didn't subtract God. All they did was add some other gods. Their sin was not of subtraction. Their sin was of attraction. They were attracted to other gods and then added them to their lives. In Israel's case, Canaanite gods. But we have our gods too, don't we? Every culture does. Every people does. Things like money and sex and comfort, power, control. A god can be any good thing turned into an ultimate thing. It's anything that demands not all of our lives. Most gods don't want all of our lives. They just want part of our lives. They just don't want God to have all of our lives. Israel broke covenant because they worshipped other gods. But the God of the Bible, well, if you want the God of the Bible, you're going to get a jealous God. His love demands it. Verse 14. Verse 14, if you look at it, it says, The angel of the Lord was kindled against Israel. God's love for his people is to such an extent, his love is so great that it flares up when anyone is unfaithful to him. God's anger flares up, we see, as his people sin and turn away from him, push him into a corner and begin worshiping other gods. And if that weren't enough, just keep reading. It gets far worse. God gave them over to be plundered. God sold them into slavery. God raised up other nations as snares. God was against Israel. Israel thought Canaan, the Canaanites and, and other people were their foes, their great foes, foes to be scared of. Now look at who their foe is. Now look who's against them. It's God himself. God himself is against them. Can you think of anything more terrifying? So, it's no wonder that verse 15, they were in terrible distress. That's, that's, that's the only reaction to this. They didn't have words. Their hearts ached. Oh, what had they done? God had always been for them and with them, guiding them, and now God's face was against them for harm. So what are they to do? What are, what are they to do? They only have one hope. And we see it starting in verse 16. We'll read 16 
through, through chapter 3, verse 6. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to the, their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their father had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them and the hand of the en- from the hand of their enemies all the day of, this, of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because of this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the ways of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Verse 1. Now these are the nations of the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, in all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonites and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods." Verse 18, God is moved. God is moved in pity by their groaning. And so he does something about it. He raises up judges to save them. God empowers judges. He, he sets his spirit upon judges so that those judges, empowered by the Spirit, can actually rescue and save God's people. What we see here is a description of grace. This is the fundamental miracle of the Bible, that God should rightly cast us into a pit of hell, that God should just wash his hands of us, God should be against us because of our sin. And yet, without reason, God stoops down and lifts us up and delivers us. It's the miracle of grace. It's the miracle fundamental to the Christian gospel. God saves people who are his own enemies. And if you're not a Christian this morning, that's what I have to offer you. In many ways, that's all I have to offer you. That grace. 
You might be a good person. You might be a great person. But I know this. None of us are perfect people. And if that's true, then you, like the rest of us, we need grace. And that's the miracle that Christianity has to offer you. God stooping us, God stooping down and picking up sinners and saving them through Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Not because of our goodness, but in spite of our goodness. Here we have one of the great acts of grace in our Bibles. God raises up judges time and time again to save his people. And he does so because of his love. He does so as the people groan. Do do you realize that God hears your groans? Back in Egypt, he heard the people's groan and he delivers them. And then time and time and time and time and time again in the book of Judges, as we'll see, the people groan and God hears and God acts. And then if you keep flipping your way through the Bible, you get to the captivity, the people of God groan again, God hears. As it relates to the people of God, as it relates to Christianity, there's always been a deep, robust theology of groaning. There are times in which our suffering and our brokenness and our pain are such that we don't have the words to say it, and so we just, mmm, we just groan. And one of the amazing things is this. It's not that that's just a cathartic thing, that it just makes us feel good to groan. The amazing thing is that God actually hears our groans. And he not only hears our groans, he is moved by our groans. That's the God of the Bible. A God moved as we cry and weep and groan Because we live in a broken world. Groaning brought on by the brokenness of the world. And even in this, groaning brought on by our own sin and our own brokenness. God hears and moves and is moved. And then if you look down in verse 16... What we find in verses 16 through verse 23, it really is simple. It's two realities set side by side in a sort of cycle. It's sin and a savior. We see this cycle all the way through the book of Judges, right? Almost every judge, some some of them are broken up, especially when you get to the darker parts at the end. But but this all works like this. This is Israel's never-ending drama. Israel falls into sin and then slavery. Israel is enslaved by other nations. Israel cries out to the God. God then raises up a judge. Israel's delivered by that judge. Israel serves the Lord all the days of that judge's lives. But death comes upon each and every judge. And the people of God, Israel, just hits the reboot button and it happens all over again. Time and time again, this happens Time and time again, God rescues sinners. Sometimes we're blinded. We're blinded by this reality. We're so engrossed in sin that we don't even see that we need a Savior. Which is why God goes to such 
effort to test his people. We see that in, in verses 1 through 6, right? Over and over again, three times, it says that God raised up other nations in order to test his people. What God is doing is he's putting Israel under a temporary disciplinary judgment by other nations. God's sort of giving them a limited judgment in verse 1, and he does so as a means of grace. He does so as a means of grace to lead them back into covenantal fidelity and faithfulness. Each and every nation is a test. A test to remind them that they need God. God raises up a deliverer, a savior. God wants them to trust him, to be devoted to him, to worship him, to be faithful to him. You see, God wants lordship not over the not only over the whole nation of Israel. God wants lordship over every Israelite heart. And nothing has changed for us. God wants that for us too. There's not one area of your life to which God does not want. I don't care how messy or ugly it is. God wants it all because God wants all of you. My family has this saying, sharing is caring. God does not have that saying. God does not share. Sharing is not caring for God. God is love. He will not share you with anyone. Because like all love, love is intolerant to infidelity. So what we see here is that God, throughout this book of Judges, he continually uses other nations like a cold shower. God's alerting his people that they're in peril. And so he's seeking to wake them up and alert them to their need for God. And he does so by disciplining them. Hebrews 12, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. This is how God works. Now, the sad thing is that Israel didn't get it. Or if they did get it, they were so blind and lost and enslaved to sin that they didn't know what to do. Israel was held in sin's grip. They were slaves. It was as if we could say it this way. They had Baal in their blood. Now, if you go back in chapter 2, after the angel of the Lord speaks and condemns them for their sin, the people of God lift up their voice and they weep. Was this repentance? No. It doesn't look like it. It doesn't look like it. One author put it this way. It's easy to make someone cry, but you need an earthquake. You need a miracle to change someone's heart and mind. And that's what this book draws us to ultimately. That's what this book draws our attention to. That all the judges in the book point to an ultimate judge, the ultimate savior, the ultimate deliverer, Jesus Christ himself. Just think of this. Jesus Christ himself was chosen by God. He too was empowered by the spirit of God. 
He too was sent to deliver the people of God from slavery, the slavery of sin. He too was called to judge his enemies. And he too would die like all other judges. But this judge would not die of old age or from the sword of war. This judge would die in order to end the cycle of judges. This judge and savior, Jesus Christ, by his death, wrenched his people from out of the clutches of the prince of darkness. Jesus is the great deliverer, which all the other deliverers, all the other judges, all the other saviors just represent in part. We see glimmers of it, but we don't see the full until Jesus Christ himself comes and is that great deliverer and savior and judge. So what does this chapter tell us? Chapter 1, chapter 2, and part of chapter 3? That there's something we need most. And it's simply this. We need a perfect judge, a perfect savior, a perfect deliverer, but that who won't just deliver us and save us, we need that judge to then empower us to change our hearts which is exactly what the new covenant is all about. No longer will the law be written on stones, but on your own heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because it's a covenant purchased by Jesus Christ himself. Now, I said at the beginning that the book of Judges is a strange book. As we read it, there's going to be hard stories, weird stories. I I commend you to, to read it ahead of time. But remember, this is not a foreign book. This is a friendly book. Because it's a book that wants us to push us into Jesus' arms of grace as we humble ourselves and trust him as Lord and Savior. We're required to trust him as judge and deliverer. This book is teaching us that we need to embrace Jesus as King and a friend of sinners. That's what this book is all about. Let's pray. God, we we are grateful that you interact with us not based on our sin and our obedience, but based on Jesus' sinlessness and his obedience. And we're thankful, Lord, that in all of the the little themes, all all of the, the, the little ways in which you raised up men and women to deliver your people, we're thankful for the reminder that they are just reminders of Jesus Christ. We're thankful that that we're we're thankful for the new covenant. In Christ's blood, we're thankful that we can have a relationship with you, that because of Jesus Christ, your, your face and your anger has been vanquished. And we now can live in peace and harmony with you now and forevermore. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray all this. Amen.